Welcome to Grace, and it's great to see all of you who are in the room. Of course, all of you who are joining us on live stream as well, we want to extend a very special welcome to you. I, uh, I know a lot of you who are, are watching on the other side of the screen, and so uh, great to see you, great to have you. And uh, so however you're joining us, we're really thankful you're able to be with us uh, here at Grace. And if you are newer or if you missed the past several weeks, let me just kind of start by maybe kind of catching you up to speed with what it is that we've been doing here at the Medina East Campus for the past several weeks. And uh, so it was probably about uh, maybe a month and a half ago now, about September, uh, that we kind of said that what we're going to do is we're going to take the next three sermon series that we have together to journey and to work together through this incredible book uh, that is in our Bibles, the book of Acts. And so that's what we've been doing. We've been spending some time really kind of focusing on this incredible book that is in your Bible, the book of Acts. And let me kind of tell you why we decided that we'd spend so much time and, and really just so much energy on that. We said that the book of Acts is actually a really, really unique book of the Bible, and it's a very, very important book in your Bible. Of course, every book in the Bible uh, is, is very, very important. We said Acts is, is actually very unique in a lot of different ways. So the book of Acts actually historically covers the first 30-year period of time after Jesus Christ rose from the dead. So what you're going to see in the Bible is that Jesus comes, he dies, he raises from the dead, and then after Jesus rises from the dead, the book of Acts chronicles for us what the first 30 years of the Christian movement really looked like. And here's what we've been saying. The reason that's so important is that the book of Acts is not just history, it is history, but we said even more than that, the book of Acts is actually intended to help us, those of us who follow Jesus, which I know not everyone in here today maybe is a follower of Jesus, some of you might still be exploring that, but we said it's helpful because it helps us rediscover some things about Christianity and it helps us rediscover some things about what it means to follow Jesus in this world. Uh, specifically, we said that the book of Acts is gonna help us rediscover three things. So number one, the book of Acts is gonna help us rediscover the message of Jesus. What was the message that Jesus originally gave to his disciples that he commissioned them to go tell the world? What was that mission or that message? And then we said this, we said that the book of Acts is gonna help us rediscover the mission. What is the mission that Jesus is on in this earth? What is the mission that he sent his followers into in the world? And then we said, the book of Acts is gonna help us rediscover the method. How does Jesus want to accomplish those things? What is the ways in which 
he is going to do that. And so we said the book of Acts is really important. We said that we're gonna take all three of these topics, the message, the mission, and the method, and we're basically gonna look at each of those in its own sermon series. And so we actually just finished a series last week. We spent five weeks talking all about the message. Some of you are with us in that. And the, the, here was the question that we were concerned with. We were looking at Acts, and we were saying, what was the original message of Christianity? What was the original message that the first Christians, that the disciples were given by Jesus to proclaim to the world around them? And we said, here's why that's an important question. Because we're also asking, have we drifted from that message? And what does it mean to return to that message, to speak it accurately to the world in which we live in? So we talked about that for five weeks. If you missed any of those weeks, I'd encourage you to go back. You can always check those out. But this week, and actually for the next four weeks after, what we're gonna do is we're gonna look together at this next part. We're gonna talk about the mission. In the book of Acts, we're gonna gain clarity on what was the mission that Jesus sent his followers into, into the world around them. So, so it's important. Here, here's why it's important, because I think we all would agree, it's important that we get the message right. We wanna make sure that we're speaking the right message, right? But at the same time, I think it's equally as important that we go about the mission correctly as well, because it's possible to get the message right but to go about the mission all wrong, it's possible to do that. And when that happens, I think what can happen is it creates a lot of confusion, it can create a lot of frustration, and it can even create a lot of abuse if you're not clear on what the mission is. So let me tell you why I think, before we jump into the passage we're gonna look at, let me tell you why I think this is so relevant and so important for every single person in this room, whether you're a follower of Jesus or whether you're someone who's investigating Jesus. The reason I think this question is so important is because when we misunderstand the mission, when we're not clear on what the mission is, it can create a lot of confusion. It can create, in some cases, a good amount of frustration. And even in dramatic cases, it can actually cause a lot of abuse. There can be abuseful, abusive things that happen in the sake of the mission. So as a way of illustrating what I'm trying to say, this story came to my mind. I thought I'd just kind of share it with you. So before I was a pastor here at Grace, I actually lived for a little while in Chicago. So I went to school in Chicago, and after I graduated, I lived in Chicago for, uh, for a little bit of time. And um, when I was there, I, I had a job, I worked downtown, but I also served in uh, student ministries. So I, I was a volunteer uh, youth worker at the church that I was part of. And if any of you guys have ever done that, if you ever serve, I know some of you guys do that now, you serve in student ministries or you serve with middle school students, it's an absolute blast. I absolutely loved it, it was so fun. One of my jobs as a volunteer was that I was in charge of games. And so if you've ever done that, you're trying to find fun games, good games, but also it, it, sometimes the more immature they are, the, 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 the better they are. And, and there was this one game that I was thinking about, and I thought I'd tell you this, because if you, if you know me, I've probably told you this story, because it's maybe one of the funniest things I've ever seen in my life. So we played this game, and here's how it worked. Okay, it got up in, in front of the whole youth group, so it was maybe like 60 kids or something, and one of the volunteer leaders got up and said, listen, we're gonna play a game, and here's how it's gonna start. We're not gonna give you any explanation, but we need three volunteers, three people who are just willing, blindly, to go into this game. And of course, when you do that, you usually get the most boisterous, outgoing kids. So we had three people who raised their hand. We said, okay, you, you, and you. We said, here's what we're gonna do. The three of you are gonna go into a separate room with one of the leaders, and they did that. And here's what happened. That, that leader took these three volunteers, and they said, here's what's gonna happen. We're gonna play this game, and all three of you are gonna go out on the stage in just a moment. And on the stage, there's a stool. There's a stool that's sitting on stage. And they said, and, and the game is that all three of you are gonna be given three different scenarios that you need to enact. And you have to do it, you can't, you can't say a word, you can only just use your actions, 
but, it, but whoever does the best job at enacting the scenario they're giving, uh, we'll, we'll take a vote on it, and if you win, you get a prize. Does that make sense? They said, it makes sense. The first person, we said to him, Here, here's your job. You're gonna go out, you're gonna sit on the stool, and you're going to enact as if you are riding the most thrilling roller coaster of your life. Okay, that's what you're gonna do. So get into it. You're not allowed to say anything, but you can act out whatever you wanna act out. Got it, got it. Second person, we said, okay, here's your job. You're gonna go out there, and you're gonna enact as if you are uh, strapped to a chair, and you are being tortured, okay? Just like absolutely tortured. So he got it, so he got it. Third person, we said, you're gonna go out, and you're gonna sit in the stool, and you're gonna enact as if you're getting the most soothing massage that you ever got in your life. So you got it, so you got it, great. So that conversation was happening in a separate, separate room. Meanwhile, in the big room, there was another conversation that was happening. And it went like this. The leader got up and said, in just a moment, three people, are, three, three volunteers are gonna come out and this stool on the stage represents a toilet. And so all three of them are going to enact what you do when you're on the toilet. And at the end of those different, at the end of those different performances, we're all going to evaluate and judge who we think did the best job. So you guys are starting to put this together. This was the recipe for the funniest thing I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, as that first kid comes out, he's thinking roller coaster. And he said, I mean, just use your imagination on this one. I mean, his hands are up and he's, and the place is coming unglued. Second person comes out, they're thinking torture. And they sit down in the whole place. I'm just telling you, my favorite one, and it made me laugh the most, was the third person, soothing massage. This person got so into it. They were just like, oh, and you're like, it was just the best, the best thing ever, all right? So we play that game. Now, now, let me just say a little bit of potty humor there. I get it, I get it. But as immature and as inappropriate and as childish, and let's be honest, as hilarious as that game is, I think it actually does prove a really good point, right? And what is the point that that game reveals to us? I think it's this, that it's possible for an entire group of people to think that they have the same goal, but actually you realize they have different objectives in mind. It's possible to have a group of people who think that they're playing the same game, that they have the same objective, that they're, all, they're doing the same thing, but in reality, internally, they have different ideas of what the goal is. And when that happens, I think it can create a lot of confusion, and in some cases, it can create a lot of embarrassment when things like that happen. Now, here's the point that I'm trying to make, is not entirely like that, but sometimes I think it can be like that with Christians. I think it can be that way. Um, that you have an entire group of people who would all agree that, yes, we want to be on mission for Jesus. But when you double-click on, well, what do you mean by that? Well, there's a lot of different ideas of what I think we might think it, it means, what it means, what it looks like to be on mission for Jesus. I don't know if you guys ever thought about this. Did you ever think about how, how Christians do a lot of different things, and they do it in the name of the mission of Jesus? They do it because they say that they're on mission for Jesus. Just think about that for a minute. Uh, there's a lot of different pictures that might come to your mind. Uh, some people would say that what we need to do is we need to reclaim the country. And we need to do that because why? Because we are on mission for Jesus. Other people would say that we need to renounce our country. And we need to do that, why? Because we are on mission for Jesus. Some people would say that we should, that we should do away with, with all, you know, we should renounce wealth and those kind of things and we should just feed the poor. We should help people who are in need. We should serve our community, and other people would say that we do that a mission for Jesus, and other people would say, actually, what we should do is fly around on private jets and, and ac ac accumulate more wealth, and, and if you really, and why? Because we're on mission 
for Jesus. And you'll notice that not only are these different, but some of them are even contradictory. And I think what it reveals is that maybe there's a need for there to be some clarity. What exactly does it mean to be on mission for Jesus? And I actually think that this is where the book of Acts is tremendously helpful. I think the book of Acts is gonna help us rediscover what exactly is the mission that we Christians are to be on for those of us who follow Christ. And so that's what we're gonna do for the next few weeks. This week is kind of an introduction week, but to introduce you to this whole idea of the mission, I actually wanna take you back to the first chapter in Acts. So if you've got your Bible, why don't you open it with me? Acts chapter one is where we're gonna go. That's found on page 882 in the Bibles that we have provided for you. So if you need to use one of those Bibles, feel free to do that. Acts one is where we're gonna go and I would encourage you to flip there. Let me just say too, and uh, we just you know, we say this all the time, but if you don't own a copy of the Bible, we would, just, we would love for you to have one, and so you can take one of those copies of the Bible from under the chairs, take that home, read it. We'd love for you, love for you to have a Bible. So Acts 1. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna look at verse three down to verse 11. This is the passage we're gonna look at. I'm gonna read the whole thing, and then afterwards we're gonna come back around and we're gonna make some, some key observations, okay? So... Acts chapter one, starting off in verse three. Here's what it says. It says, after Jesus' suffering, he presented himself to them, to his disciples, and he gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and he spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave this command. He said, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift that my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days, you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and they asked him, Lord, at this time, are you gonna restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus said to them, it's not for you to know the times and the dates that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria all the way to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside him. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way that you have seen him go into heaven. Right, so that's gonna be the passage that we're gonna look at. And I don't know if you were able to, to, to kind of stick with and, and, and kind of, kind of uh, see what was going on in this passage, but you actually see something amazing. So the Bible is gonna tell us that after Jesus rose from the dead, after he resurrected from the dead, that Jesus actually spent a period of about 40 days with his disciples. So he spent over a month hanging out with his disciples after he rose from the dead, which is crazy to me. And what did Jesus do in this 40-day period of time? Now, I want you to notice in the text, it's gonna tell us you did a couple of things. One of the things he did was he gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. And we talked about this in weeks past, if you were with us. We said that it was absolutely critical that his disciples were convinced that the resurrection actually happened. So Jesus made sure for 40 days they were convinced about that. But I want you to notice the Bible's gonna tell us that Jesus actually talked to his disciples about one specific topic in this 40-year period of time. There was one thing that he was talking to them and he was instructing them on and they were, he was teaching them about in this 40-day period of time. And what was it? You guys notice in this passage, it tells us that for 40 days, he spoke about the kingdom of God. What did he talk with them about? He told them about the kingdom of God. Now, you guys, I, I wanna, my hope is that what you're gonna see today is that this, this concept, this idea, this topic, this teaching of the kingdom of God is absolutely critical 
to understanding the mission that Jesus has sent us on. It's his kingdom, his kingdom. Now, here's the thing about that, though. I know that when I say that phrase, the kingdom of God, or maybe you've heard it said the kingdom of heaven, maybe you've heard that. My guess is that for all of us who are here today and those who are watching online, my guess is all of us are probably at least somewhat familiar with that phrase. We've probably heard that before. Right? We've heard people say the kingdom of God. We've heard people say the kingdom of heaven. I think there's even movies and shows that are called that. I don't know. And I think, I think that most of us are familiar with that phrase, but as familiar as we are with that phrase, I think that the topic of the kingdom of God is actually a little confusing to us. What exactly is Jesus talking about? I think for a lot of us, when we hear kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, what we tend to think of is we usually think of a place. We think of a place. A lot of us think the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, that's like the place you go after you die if you know Jesus, right? That's like heaven. It's a place that you go to. I think for a lot of us, we think of a territory. Maybe for us, when we think of the kingdom, we think of like the United Kingdom. You know, it's a government and it's a, it's, a, it's a place that you can actually visit. Or maybe for some of us, quite honestly, the only kingdom that we're even aware of is the magic kingdom, right? We think of Disney World down in Florida, a magical kingdom where your money magically disappears if you go. <laughs> and a lot of us think about it. That's what we tend to think of when we think of the kingdom. But here's what I want you to know. This idea of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is actually the centerpiece of everything that Jesus ever taught. If you guys ever go through the Gospels, and specifically Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you're gonna see that Jesus teaches on the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven more than any other topic, more than any other. 104 times in the Gospels, Jesus is always talking about his kingdom. I've come to bring a kingdom. There's a kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom of God is like. He teaches us to pray. How are we to pray? Your kingdom come, your will be done. The kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom, it's all over the place. And so, so here's the question that I want us to think about with the remaining time that we have is what exactly is the kingdom and what does that have to do with our mission? What does that have to do? Because I think, I honestly think that the kingdom has everything to do with our mission. And I think what we're gonna see with the remaining time that we have is just three things. Acts is gonna show us three things and it's this. The Acts is gonna show us that our mission, for those of us who follow Jesus, our mission is actually not to create the kingdom. Our mission is not to create God's kingdom. I think we're also gonna see our mission is not to await God's kingdom. I think what we're gonna see in Acts is that our mission is actually to proclaim. It's to testify and it's to announce the gospel or the good news about God's kingdom. Now, some of you are reading that and you're like, that doesn't make any sense to me at all. And so let me, let me just take some time to explain what I mean. So let's start with the first one, the very first one. Our job, for those of us who follow Jesus, our mission is actually not to create the kingdom. It's not to create the kingdom. I wanna show you something interesting. Look at verse six with me for a moment. In verse six, the Bible says that the disciples surrounded Jesus and then they asked him, Lord, are you at this time gonna restore the kingdom to Israel? Um, now, I want you to, to remember what's going on here. So these are the disciples. The disciples have spent the last about three years with Jesus, right? They have been with him. They have heard Jesus teach about his kingdom over and over. Jesus is always saying, I kind of bring a kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom. Then Jesus dies, and they're like, well, I guess it was a sham. But then he rises from the dead, and then they ask Jesus what I think is a very logical question after Jesus rises from the dead. They're like, you know that kingdom that you keep talking about, that kingdom that you said you were gonna bring is, it, is this the time now? Are you gonna bring it now? Are you gonna bring the kingdom in this moment? I think it's a very logical question. 
But I want you to see that by the way they're asking this question, it's evident that they have a, a very specific expectation of how that kingdom is going to come. And what is that? Well, when they say restore the kingdom, when they say that word restore, it's evident that they were expecting a political and a territorial kingdom. And when they say Israel, it, it shows that what they were expecting was a national kingdom. And when, it said, when they say at this time, it shows that they were expecting that it was gonna happen right then and right there. In other words, here's what's going on. The disciples thought to themselves, now that Jesus has raised from the dead, he's gonna overthrow Rome. Jesus is gonna do away with all of the corrupt governmental systems around us, and he is going to establish his political dominance. That's what they anticipated was going to happen. But it's clear by Jesus' response to their question that Jesus was trying to challenge their expectations because look at how Jesus responds. They're like, is it time, Jesus? You're gonna bring that kingdom now? And here's what Jesus says. He said to them, it's not for you to know the times and the days that the Father has set by his own authority. You guys see Jesus' response? It's ba Jesus basically says this. He says, oh, the kingdom stuff? That's none of you. It's none of your business. It's not your concern. That's actually not to be your focus. That's not to be the primary thing that you are to be concerned about. Now, here's something I want you to think about with me. They're like, Jesus, are you gonna bring the kingdom? And Jesus is like, that's not your concern. Is Jesus just dodging the question? Is that what he's doing? Is he like, I don't wanna talk about the kingdom. Let's talk about something else now. Is that what he's doing? And I, I, I think this, I think no. I don't think Jesus is dodging the question at all. I think Jesus is actually confronting the fact that they're misunderstanding the kingdom. I think that's what he's doing. You guys, over and over again, when you read the gospels of Jesus, you're gonna see that he's always trying to help his disciples see that he's going to establish a kingdom, but it is not going to happen the way that any of them were expecting. He's always doing that. If I, if I could summarize Jesus' teaching on the kingdom in the clearest and most succinct way that I can, the way that I would do that is actually by showing you a visual that I got from a guy named George Eldon Ladd. So I wanna show this to you real quick. There's a guy named George Eldon Ladd. He wrote this book. It actually was called The Gospel of the Kingdom. It's a fantastic book. It was actually written back in the 50s. But this book was actually a paradigm, pivotal shift, uh, shifting book uh, in, uh, in many different circles. And I think it's incredible. It talks about the kingdom. But basically what he does is he describes some of the misconceptions that we have about the kingdom and then what Jesus taught about the kingdom. So I want you to stick with me for just a minute because I promise you that what, 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 what this shows us is absolutely essential to understanding the mission that Jesus is sending us on. So here's what Eldon Ladd would say. He would say that for a lot of people, and including the disciples, they had a perception of how Jesus was gonna bring the kingdom. And this is what their perception looked like, right? So you have this present age. This present age, what is that talking about? Well, that's actually a term the Bible uses to talk about the current time that we live in. It's the current world that we live in. The world and all of its beauty, but quite honestly, in all of its brokenness. The world as we know it, with all of the corruption that we see around us, that's this present age as we know it, life as we know it right now. So what the disciples thought was that, yeah, you know, you have this current time, this present age, and then Jesus comes into this present age. Jesus entered into the corrupted world that we live in. And then Jesus comes and he starts announcing, he starts proclaiming a kingdom. He starts talking about how he's gonna bring a different kind of kingdom. And then he dies, and then he rises from the dead. And when Jesus rises from the dead, the disciples thought, okay, what that means is that now 
This present age as we know it is gonna come to an end. Jesus is gonna destroy all the corrupted government systems and he is going to usher in his kingdom and his kingdom is gonna last forever. That's what they were expecting was gonna happen right then and right there. And here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, no, that's actually not how it works. That's not how the kingdom is gonna happen. It's not what you think. So how is it gonna work? Well, according to George Eldon Ladd, he would say this, and I very much agree with him, according to what Jesus teaches. He would say the picture is actually a little bit more like this. You have this present age, the world that we live in, as we know it. Jesus comes into this world, announces a kingdom, but when he rises from the dead, this present age doesn't end, but there is a new kingdom that is inaugurated. There's a new kingdom that is established. There's a new kingdom that is started, but this kingdom is not of this world. That's what Jesus says. This kingdom is not about a territory. This kingdom is not about a place. This kingdom is about a king. And who are the people of the kingdom? The people of the kingdom are the people who proclaim that the resurrected Jesus is the king of their lives. And the people of the kingdom are the people who orient their lives around a new king who's in charge of all of their life. And this happens and it continues to grow. It continues to grow until the end of the age. The Bible's very clear. One day, this world, as we know it, will come to an end. All the corruption that we see in the world will come to an end, but the kingdom of God will endure forever. I just wanna tell you that I think this picture right here helps make sense of everything that Jesus taught. Think about some of the parables that Jesus gave. Do you guys remember? Jesus said the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. What happens with a mustard seed? It starts small, and then it grows big, and eventually it overtakes all the other plants in the garden, is what he says. How about this one? Jesus said the kingdom of God is like a field with both wheat and tares that were growing at the same time. There's two things happening. And it's not until the harvest when he separates the wheat from the tares. I think it helps us understand Jesus' teaching on the kingdom. What Jesus says to the disciples then, is he says, what you need to understand is that you are here. You live in the tension between, this is what commentators call the already not yet. The kingdom of God has already started, but it is not yet here in its fullness. Okay, now some of you might be hearing all that and you might be saying, okay, I I think I understand what you're saying, but uh, why does that matter? Why does that matter to you? Why does that matter to me? Here's why this matters, because I believe that just like the disciples, when we misunderstand the kingdom, we misunderstand our mission. When we misunderstand the kingdom, we misunderstand what we're to be focusing on. Listen, I think some people would say today, some Christians would think that our mission is that we're supposed to create the kingdom, that we are supposed to forcefully make this world look more Christian. I think some people would say that that's our mission. And so how do we do that? Our mission is that we need to gain greater political influence. Our mission is that we need to ensure that we have the loudest voice, that we have the largest social and political platforms, and that we are to protest and we are to silence anyone and anything that is anti-God. Some people believe that our job is that we are to create the kingdom. We are to make this world Christian. That's what we are to do. And I just want to tell you, there's been a lot of things that have been done in history that have been very abusive because of this mentality that our job is to force, is to force the kingdom to be here, to create it ourselves. Some people believe that our mission is to make this world by our efforts and by our actions become the kingdom. And so we need to eliminate injustice and we need to serve the poor 
and we need to help the needy. And by doing those things, we are making the kingdom happen. Now, I want you to hear me. I think for sure Christians should do those things, absolutely. However, I want you to understand that never once, never once does Jesus or the New Testament authors ever tell us that we are to create the kingdom or that we are to build the kingdom. Never once. Jesus says stuff like this. He says that we should pray that his kingdom comes. He says that we should seek first his kingdom. Jesus says that we should receive the kingdom. He says that we can inherit the kingdom. Jesus says that we should preach the kingdom. We should announce it. He says that we should testify. The book of Acts says we should testify to the kingdom. Scripture says that we are even to be a kingdom. Those of us who follow Jesus are to be the kingdom, but never once, never once does it say that we are to create it, that we are to forcefully make the kingdom come. Now, let let me just be super clear on this, okay? I know some of you are hearing me, and I want to make sure you're hearing me right. I am not saying that a follower of Jesus should be disengaged politically. I'm not saying that at all. I think if you're a person who follows Jesus, the kingdom of God should absolutely impact your politics. It should. The way that you vote, the, 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 the ethics that you, the kingdom ethics that those of us who follow Jesus adhere to, those things have implications in the way that we involve ourselves socially and politically. They should. And I'm not saying that a follower of Jesus shouldn't help the poor, shouldn't help. Absolutely, we should do those things. But here's what I want you to hear me say. Christians do those things not because we're bringing the kingdom. We do those things because we belong to the kingdom. Does that make sense what I'm saying? It's a very important distinguishing feature. We don't do those things because we're trying to create we do those things because we, we are representing a different kind of kingdom. It's very, very, very different. If I could just put it bluntly, maybe I could put it this way. When followers of Jesus are more concerned about saving America than they are about saving Americans and inviting them to make Jesus the king of their life, I think we're off mission. I love the way one commentator put it. His name is David Kibble. He said this, on no account, therefore, can we see our political objective as furthering, building, or realizing the kingdom of God? There's at least two reasons for this. Firstly, we ourselves can do nothing to build or further God's kingdom. We can't build God's kingdom. We can't do it. It's out of our pay grade. For the kingdom is where God reigns as creator and redeemer. The kingdom is essentially God's work. Secondly, the kingdom only exists on earth where people submit themselves to God's rule. And this aim does not and cannot come with the scope of political objectives. You see what he's saying? He's saying, listen, you can't legislate people to call Jesus Christ king. You can't enact laws that are gonna change the hearts of people that they declare that Jesus Christ is king. Now, some of you are going, okay, I think I hear what you're saying and I, I, I think I'm tracking with you. So is what you're saying then, are you saying that if we don't create the kingdom, that all we do is just sit back and do nothing then? Is that what you're saying? You're saying Christians ought to just put their head in their sand or in the head, their head in the sand or put their head in the clouds and just not be involved in anything that's happening in the world that we live in? Well, I think the answer to that question is a resounding no because of the second point, and that's this. Our mission is not to await God's kingdom. Our mission is not to just sit around passively and just wait for Jesus to return. That's not it. Can I show you something I think is awesome? Look at verse nine. I, just, I love this next part. I think this is so cool. Verse nine, after Jesus is talking to his disciples, It says, after he said these things, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. 
They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside him. This has got to be one of the trippiest scenes in the Bible. This is crazy to me. I want you to get this in your mind. Jesus has been with his disciples for 40 days, teaching them about the kingdom of God, giving them convincing proofs that he was alive. After 40 days, the Bible says that Jesus, he ascends into heaven. And I don't know what that would have looked like, but that would have been so trippy. He just disappears from their sight. And the Bible says that they're now staring intently into the sky because Jesus just vanished. And as that happened, the Bible says that these two men dressed in white just showed up. And you're like, who are these guys? Who are these two guys dressed in white? Well, we actually know this. Uh, they would have been angels. These are two angels who would have appeared in that moment. Now, I don't want to get too crazy in depth on this, but I got to just say this because I think it's important. If you read the Gospel of Luke and you read Acts, they were written by the same author, you're going to see that angelic visitations happen at pivotal moments in the story of Jesus. So these angels show up, and what do they do? Well, whenever you see angels show up in Luke and Acts, they're always there to help the people of God interpret what happened and help them know what to do in response. So where do you see angels show up? You see them show up at the birth of Jesus. Uh, angels show up to Mary. They help her understand what's happening and how to respond. They show up to Joseph. They help him understand what's happening and how to respond. They show up at the resurrection. Uh, two angels show up in the garden and they tell the women, uh, this Jesus is not here. He's risen from the dead. They're helping them interpret and understand what has happened and how to respond. The angels show up again here when Jesus ascends. And what are they doing? Well, they're there to help us understand what's happening and how to respond. And what do they say? Well, here's what the, the angel said. Men of Galilee, the angel said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? Now, I just want to say on this point here, I don't know about you, I don't mean any disrespect to the angels. It seems like a really dumb question, doesn't it? Like, why are you guys staring at the sky? And I'm like, I'll tell you why. Because Jesus just flew away. Like, that doesn't happen. It's like, why? But I, I, here's what I think is interesting. I think what they're doing is, I think it's an important statement. Basically, I think what they're saying is this. I think they're saying, they're saying, I think in a lot of ways, quit staring at the sky. Do you notice four times in two verses, into the sky, into the sky, into heaven, into heaven, I think the repetition, especially in light of the angel's implied reproof, is almost as if to say, stop staring at the sky. Stop staring at the sky. That is not to be your primary focus. That's not to be your primary aim. That's not to be your primary concern is your focus shouldn't just be looking at the sky all the time. They say this then. They say, quit looking at the sky. Jesus is gonna come back. This Jesus, will, he will come back. Now, some of you are like, now what's that talking about? When it says Jesus is gonna come back. Well, let me tell you what that's talking about. It's talking about a very clear teaching that you're gonna find in the New Testament of the Bible of the second coming of Jesus Christ. So I want you to know that what the Bible teaches is that as real and as historical and as physical as the resurrection of Jesus Christ is, so will be his return. He will come back in time and space in history for real. He will come back. Now, we don't know a ton about that, but I can tell you the Bible tells us quite a bit. Let me give you one slide on this one, okay? Here's what we know about the second coming of Christ, according to scripture. We know it's gonna happen suddenly. The Bible says it's gonna be like a thief in the night. Jesus will come back and it will be unexpected. We know this, it's gonna happen in such a way that the whole earth is somehow gonna witness this. That's what the scripture teaches us. We know this, many people will declare that they know when Jesus is coming back, but they don't because only the father knows. That's what scripture is very clear on. 
uh, upon his return, Jesus will judge the living and the dead. And we know this, this return is gonna catalyze the resurrection of the dead. Those who follow Jesus who have died in Christ will rise, and then those who belong to Christ will meet him, will meet him. That's what the Bible's gonna tell us. Now these things, all I told you, are just straight from the scriptures, and the Bible says this is real. And I want you to understand that this is an important teaching, and the writers of scripture want us to be, they want us to be certain of this, they want us to live in light of this, and they want us to be prepared for this, okay? That's very, very important. However, and this is what I want you to hear me say as well, I think what you're gonna see in the book of Acts and what you're gonna see from the angels is that this is not to be the focal point of our mission. This is not the focal point. John Stott is a commentator, pastor and commentator. He said it well. He said, there was something fundamentally inconsistent about the disciples gazing up into the sky when they had been commissioned to go to the ends of the earth. It was the earth, not the sky, which was to be their preoccupation. Their calling was to be witnesses, not stargazers. The vision that they were to cultivate was not upwards in nostalgia to heaven, which had received Jesus, but outwards in compassion to a lost world which needed him. It's the same for us. Curiosity about heaven and its occupants, speculation about prophecy and its fulfillment, and obsession with the times and the seasons, these are aberrations which distract us from our God-given mission. I think he's right about that. I think, I think that it's important that we know that, yes, man, Jesus is gonna return. That's an important scriptural truth, but that should not be the focal point of the mission that we're on. It should never detract us from the thing that God has called us to do on this earth. So that might beg this question. Okay, so we know what not to do. I think it's pretty clear we see that here in this passage. So what is the mission then? Well, I think that's what we're gonna see in this next part. And uh, Jesus, yeah, he says this. I think what's gonna show us our mission is this. Our mission is to proclaim the gospel of God's kingdom. That's it. It's not to create it. We can't create it. That's God's job. There's nothing we can do in our own efforts to build the kingdom of God. It's not to await it. It's not just to wait for his kingdom to come, but it is to proclaim, to proclaim, to testify to the good news of this. I want you to see what he says in Acts 1.8. Acts 1.8, you guys, in many ways, is actually the outline of the entire book of Acts. It's such a critical verse. Here's what it says. Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. I want you to see that this is the only directive in this passage. The Bible says that the disciples are like, is the kingdom gonna come now? And he's like, that's not your concern. They start gazing into the sky and the angels are like, cut it out. So what are we supposed to do? Here's what we're supposed to do. You, he says, will receive power and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Uh, we talked about this in weeks past. The word witness is a very important word. It actually is a legal word. It was used in court systems. It was someone who would testify. It was someone who would testify to an event or they would witness something that had happened. And so the Bible's gonna tell us that our role, our job, our mission is centered on this, that we're to be witnesses and that we're to take that witness into the world around us. So what does that mean then? What does it mean and what does that include? What does it look like to be witnesses in the world that we live in. Well, that is what we wanna talk about in the next weeks to come. We wanna gain clarity on. But as we enter into those next weeks that we're gonna go into, I wanna send you into the next weeks of this series, the next four weeks of this series, with four key principles to keep in mind, okay? I want you to keep this in mind based on everything we just talked about. Here's the first one. Our mission, those of us who follow Jesus, is to proclaim 
our, with our lips and with our lives. And we actually said this a couple weeks ago, but I think it's just worth reiterating. In the book of Acts, you're gonna see how did the early Christians, how did they witness, how did they testify to the world around them? The way they did that was with their lips, what they announced, but it also was with their lives, with their lips. What do we mean by that? What we mean is that we are to declare the message of Jesus, the message of the gospel to those around us. And some of you might be saying, well, what exactly is that? Well, that's what we spent the last five weeks talking about. And so if you missed that, I would encourage you to go back and listen because we tried to gain clarity on how do we know we got the message right? We wanna get the message right. Now, let me just clarify something else because I had a couple people ask me this and I just wanna be clear. Some of you might be saying, now wait a minute, I was with you for the past five weeks and what you said was that what we need to do is preach the gospel and now what you're saying is that we need to tell people about the kingdom. So which one is it, pastor? Is it the gospel or is it the kingdom? And so uh, let me just, it could be confusing, so let me just try to help clarify. Whenever the Bible says gospel, whenever it says that, that is always a shorthand version of the longer phrase, the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. They are one and the same. What is the gospel? The gospel is what we said for the past five weeks. It is the declaration of the resurrected king, King Jesus, all right? So that's the message. But we also declare it with our lives. It's possible for us to get the right message with our lips, but to completely get the mission wrong with our lives. And I think that's really important. I love what the Apostle Paul says. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, we are ambassadors of this kingdom. I think that's a great term. You guys know what an ambassador is? An ambassador is someone who's from a different country, who lives in a foreign country, but who represents the country from which they come from. I think that's what Christians are to be. We are not to live separate from the world that we live in, we're to live among the world we live in, but we are to be representatives of a different kingdom. We are to show people what it looks like to live life when Jesus Christ is the king. What does it look like when Jesus is king? That's what our life should testify. Keep that in mind because we're gonna talk about that in weeks to come. Here's the second thing I want you to keep in mind. This mission is centrifugal, not centripetal. Now, some of you are like, what the heck are you talking about? All right, so, so I actually think this is a helpful illustration. You guys remember learning about centrifugal force. You guys know what that is, right? Like if I had, a, uh, if I had something and I spun, spun it real fast, the stuff that would be on that, if I had a plate and I spun it real fast, the stuff that was on that plate would fly outwards. Why? Because that's centrifugal force. Centripetal is the opposite. It's when everything goes inward, everything is drawn in. What I want you to see is that this mission, the mission of Jesus, it demands that we go out not that we stay put. This is absolutely essential to what you see in Acts 1.8. Jesus says, you're gonna be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, it's like concentric circles, in Samaria, all the way to the ends of the earth. It demands that we go out. You guys know it's interesting. In many ways, this verse serves as an outline of the entire book of Acts. It really does. The book of Acts basically looks like this. From chapters one to six, where are they at? You're in Jerusalem. And then after chapter six, you're gonna see from six to 10, where do they go? They go to Judea and Samaria. They go outward. And then the book of Acts is gonna end all the way in Rome. And you're gonna see that what's happening is that like concentric circles, this message is centrifugal. It goes out, it goes out, it goes out. And that gets really, really important as we see that. But more important than this just being an outline of the book of Acts, here's what I want you to see. These are, this is the agenda of King Jesus. This is the mission that he has sent us on. It is a mission that is to be outward. 
So I think why that's important is this, is that, listen, if our expression of following Jesus has a centripetal effect, if it causes us to clump up and to lump together and to be more isolated together, I think if that's what happens when we follow Jesus, it has that kind of effect, I think it shows that we've misunderstood the mission. The mission should catapult us out, not just geographically either. I think that the gospel demands that we break through social and political political and geographical and racial barriers. You guys, this, this is why we're so committed to planting 30 campuses in 30 years. This is why life groups are always multiplying. This is why we're encouraging disciples of Jesus to go and make disciples of Jesus. Why is that? It's because we believe that this, this mission is one that is centrifugal. Now, we'll talk in weeks to come about how that looks. How does that play out in our lives? We'll talk about that in weeks to come. Here's the third thing. This mission is impossible in our own power. We can't do it in our own strength. We can't force or create the kingdom to come. We can't do it. This is why Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. This is why Jesus, I don't know if you guys noticed in this passage, Jesus told his disciples, go to Jerusalem and wait. Don't you dare do anything until the Holy Spirit comes. It's almost like a parent telling their kids, don't touch anything, don't do anything, wait. And that's what Jesus is saying. Why? Because we can't do it on our own. We can't. This is a mission that has to be led by, that has to be initiated by, the, the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Now, some of you might be saying, what does that look like? What does it look like to be led by the Spirit, to be empowered by the Spirit? That's what we're gonna talk about in weeks to come. And then here's the last thing, and with this, I'll invite the band to come up. This mission doesn't end with Acts. This is why this is so relevant to us in this room. This mission didn't end in Acts. It's not like in Acts 1, Jesus gives this mission, and then in Acts 28, the mission is over. That's not it. This mission continues, and it goes forth and it goes on. When does this mission end? Well, here's when this mission ends. This mission ends when Jesus returns. And what that means for those of us who follow Jesus, that their mission is our mission. That the mission that they were on is the mission that we're to center our lives around as well. That this mission is, is something that should, our, our entire lives should be together oriented around. Here's what Jesus himself said in Matthew 24. He said, in this gospel, the good news of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then, and then the end will come. And then they'll come. And so how long are we on this mission until Jesus comes back? And until then, our hearts, our minds, our efforts should be on the same mission that Jesus has invited us into. That's what we're looking forward to in the next weeks to come. Let's pray. Well, Jesus, I wanna say thank you that you have... Um, that you have come to this earth on a mission, that you came to seek and save the lost, that you came to, to invite us into a life that is oriented and centered around you as the king of our lives. And now, God, I pray for our church. I pray for us, for those of us who follow you here in this time and space. Would you help us over the next few weeks, help us to reorient ourselves and rediscover the mission that you've called us on into. God, help us. Help us, please, to know what that looks like in our lives, our real lives, here and now today in 21st century America in Medina, Ohio. And Lord, I pray that maybe you would create just a burning passion inside of us to be on this mission together as a community of your people here at this church. So Father, we love you, and we pray that as we have an opportunity to go in the next few weeks together, 
that you would speak to us, that you would lead us, that you would show us by the power of your Holy Spirit. And now as we have a chance to worship and sing, I do pray that the lyrics that we're singing, that they would become the prayers of our heart as we cry out to you together in these next moments. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.